This is section 10 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 10, Territorial Enterprise, October 1863. Territorial Enterprise, October 1863, portion of original. First Annual Fair of the Washoe Agricultural, Mining, and Mechanical Society, Carson City, October 19, 1863. The Triumphal Parade. Late on Saturday afternoon, after the announcement of the awards in Class A had been made, all the stock had received premiums formed in a sort of triumphal procession, with the band at the head, and the stock following in the order of precedence to which they were entitled by the decision of the judges, and marched down to the city through the principal streets of which they paraded two or three times back and forth before final dismissal. The parade of so many fine animals in the streets was really a very fine sight, and was witnessed by everybody with much pleasure, being the first grand parade of the kind ever seen in the territory. GREAT PANTOMIME SPEECH While waiting at the race-course on Saturday for the arrival of some of the officers from the pavilion, some of the boys belonging to the brass band in attendance concluded to do what they could for the amusement of those present, and so took possession of the platform from which the awards were to be made. One of the party was introduced to the audience as a very eloquent gentleman, who had volunteered to favor those present with a speech on the success of the fair. The speaker took his position, and made a polite bow to his audience. Another of the musicians prepared to take down the speech, and the third acted in the capacity of bottle-holder. The speaker soon launched forth, and in a few moments had worked himself up into a tremendous state of excitement. His lips worked convulsively, though no sound escaped them. He pointed toward the rocky peaks of the Sierras, then at the surrounding brown hills, finishing with a complacent wave of his hand toward the broad valley in which he stood. He was leaning far over the railing of the platform in the middle of a most eloquent appeal to the crowd, occasionally pointing heavenward, when his bottle-holder was suddenly overtaken by a violent fit of admiration, which he felt constrained to manifest by a most vigorous stamping upon the boards of the platform, so vigorous that he burst through one of the boards and hung suspended by the arms. A keg of nails was kicked over in the row, and the great oratorical effort came to an end amid the prolonged shouts and cheers of the crowd. I was favored with a look at the speech as taken down by the reporter, and given the following extract. Quote, exclamation, exclamation, question, exclamation, question, semicolon, comma, comma, exclamation, 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 period, close quotes. There were some ten pages in the same style, but as your readers will perhaps be better pleased with the extract I have given than with the whole speech as taken down by the reporter, I will omit the balance. Races Saturday Afternoon The challenge of deuces against the field on Friday for three hundred dollars, catch weights, barring Breckenridge, was accepted by 
Kate Mitchell, but today she was lame and forfeited. After the failure of these horses to run, a race was gotten up between three Spanish nags for a purse of $27.50, single dash of a mile. In starting, Gray Dick and the black nag, Sheep, got off at the tap of the drum, but the sorrel horse, Split Ear, was held by his owner. Sheep and Gray Dick dashed forward when the cry of come back was raised by several, also by a voice or two on the judge's stand. Gray Dick's rider came back, but the rider of Sheep, Johnny Craddock, after riding back a short distance and ascertaining that the drum had tapped, turned about and rode leisurely around the track, winning the race and purse, according to the decision of the judges and the rules of the Carson Racing Club. The decision was that once the drum was tapped, it was a go, the riders not being required to pay any attention to the calls to come back from anybody. Outside bets were declared drawn. A new race was now made up between the same nags. Theodore Winters paid the entrance fees for the three horses, amounting to fifteen dollars, purse twenty dollars, single dash of a mile. The horses got a very fair start. On the first quarter, Sheep got the lead, Gray Dick came next, and Split Ear brought up the rear. Sheep still held his own on nearing the home stretch, but Gray Dick soon began to gain on him, and they were soon head and head. Both riders used the whip freely on the home stretch, and the race was more stubbornly contested than any one that has taken place on the track this week. The betting had been very free on Sheep and Gray Dick, Sheep seeming to be the favorite, and the excitement was intense. Sheep passed the score six inches ahead of Gray Dick, winning the purse. Time, one minute fifty-eight seconds. A purse of $16.25 was now made up, the same horses to run, single dash of one mile. Gray Dick had the track, split ear second, sheep third. The horses got a very good start. Gray Dick led for the first half mile, sheep followed closely, and split ear far behind. Gray Dick kept the lead down the home stretch, and others following in about the same order in which they passed the half mile post, and came in three lengths ahead of sheep, split ear being three or four hundred yards behind. Gray Dick won the purse. Time, two minutes, eight seconds. A purse of twenty-five dollars was now made up for a slow race, the slowest horse of the three to win. Riders to change horses. Split Ear had the track, Sheep second, Gray Dick third. Sheep's owners had given him all the water he could drink on the sly, and from the start he was behind, and kept at least three hundred yards behind all the way around the track. Gray Dick came in first, Split Ear second, and Sheep rolled along far behind. Sheep won the race and purse. Time, two minutes, seventeen seconds. A HINT TO CARSON There are some things that kept running through my mind while looking through the city of Carson, and considering the peculiarities of its site, that I cannot refrain from jotting down here, though not coming strictly under the head of the fair. However, they were suggested by improvements made on the plaza in preparing for the holding of the fair, and may therefore be considered as one of its legitimate fruits. I think that every person who attended the fair must have been most forcibly struck with the great improvement made in the appearance of the plaza by the planting of evergreens on it in front of and about the pavilion. This first led me to consider the site of the town and the many advantages its location afforded for making it one of the prettiest and pleasantest cities on the eastern slope. 
situated on a wide and almost level plain, at but a short distance from the eastern base of the Sierras, with numerous fine mountain streams tumbling down the hills behind it, Carson might have every street as well supplied with ditches of water as are those of Salt Lake City. The water from these ditches might be made to cause a thousand gardens in the city to bloom as the rose. At no very great expense, the water of one of the mountain streams nearby might be brought upon the plaza in pipes, and used to supply fountains in various parts of the grounds. About these fountains, willows and plats of flowers might be planted, which, with a liberal sprinkling of cottonwood and other trees in various parts, would make it a far prettier place than the willows near San Francisco. With some such improvements, Carson would be apt to attract nearly all the wealthy men owning mines and mills, or doing business in this part of the territory. They would all wish to reside in or near so pretty and pleasant a place. If the plaza was turned into a park as pleasant and beautiful as it might be made, it would soon become a general place of resort on Saturdays and Sundays for all the young people, and pleasure-seekers in general, of all the neighboring towns and cities. If the present pavilion is allowed to stand where it is, it should be raised at least six to eight feet higher than it is by putting under it some kind of basement. Then, with a broad flight of steps at the entrance of each wing, it would be a really imposing edifice, and one that would at once elicit the admiration of every stranger passing through the town. Mr. Curry, one of the most public-spirited men in Carson, has already put a beautiful and substantial fence around the plaza, and has offered to build a fountain that will throw a stream some twenty-five feet high, provided the water company, now about supplying water to the city, would furnish the amount of water needed. The people of Carson have, as I remarked above, the foundations for the handsomest city on the eastern slope, and the fault will lie with themselves if they don't make it such. THE FAIR, A SUCCESS, AND A VALUABLE LESSON I have not yet been able to obtain the exact amount of all the receipts of the fair, and will therefore defer all mention of sums. The receipts in full will shortly be obtained and published. I may, however, say that I heard it stated that the receipts would be much more than adequate to the liquidation of all outstanding liabilities of the society, and that the two thousand dollars appropriated by the legislature could be allowed to stand over untouched for the fair of next year. A number of the members of the society have acted most generously, and done much toward contributing to the financial success of the institution. Theodore Winters, in the start, donated the society two hundred dollars. Afterwards he presented to the society all his winnings, amounting to two hundred and twenty-five dollars, and has in various other ways aided the institution to near the amount of one thousand dollars. The owners of the Carson race course, as I took occasion to mention in a former letter, acted in the most liberal and handsome manner by the society, in giving them the free use of all their grounds and buildings, to say nothing of the fact of their having worked all the week like Trojans for the success of the fair. Mr. Gillespie, the secretary, and many other officers of the society, labored day and night during the progress of the exhibition, that nothing might be left undone that could further the plans or aid the triumphant result of an institution which too many had predicted would die in an inglorious fizzle. But we have no fizzle to chronicle. 
we have not, it is very true, made the grandest display of the kind ever seen on the Pacific coast, but there have been much worse. We came to the exhibition, many of us, with a feeling of dubiousness in our hearts, half ashamed to tell where we were going, even when on the way. When we came away, we felt quite proud, held up our heads, and said we'd been to the fair. We have most of us been dwellers in the mountains and delvers in the mines, and knew little of the agricultural capacity of our valleys. We had rather supposed that we should be obliged always to look to California for our supplies of such articles of farm produce as we might need. But we have now had a faint glimpse of what may be done upon our soil, and feel no hesitancy in calling upon all who wish to till the earth in a land where the soil yields a bountiful return, and the best market in the world is open at the door of the cultivator, to come and occupy the land lying ready and free for all settlers. All who were now engaged in the cultivation of the soil of Washoe, and were present at the exhibition, and even those who only hear of it from the reports going forth, will now go to work in greater earnestness and with more confidence. Especially will this be the case with those contemplating fruit culture, and we shall expect to soon see orchards in all our valleys and vineyards gracing the slopes of all our hills. Territorial Enterprise, October 28, 1863 A Bloody Massacre Near Carson From Abram Curry, who arrived here yesterday afternoon from Carson, we have learned the following particulars concerning a bloody massacre which was committed in Ormsby County night before last. It seems that during the past six months a man named P. Hopkins, or Philip Hopkins, has been residing with his family in the old log-house just at the edge of the great pine forest which lies between Empire City and Dutch Nicks. The family consisted of nine children, five girls and four boys, the oldest of the group, Mary, being nineteen years old, and the youngest, Tommy, about a year and a half. Twice in the past two months Mrs. Hopkins, while visiting in Carson, expressed fears concerning the sanity of her husband, remarking that of late he had been subject to fits of violence, and that during the prevalence of one of these he had threatened to take her life. It was Mrs. Hopkins' misfortune to be given to exaggeration, however, and but little attention was paid to what she said. About ten o'clock on Monday evening, Hopkins dashed into Carson on horseback, with his throat cut from ear to ear, and bearing in his hand a reeking scalp from which the warm smoking blood was still dripping, and fell in a dying condition in front of the Magnolia Saloon. Hopkins expired in the course of five minutes without speaking. The long red hair of the scalp he bore marked it as that of Mrs. Hopkins. A number of citizens, headed by Sheriff Gashery, mounted at once and rode down to Hopkins' house, where a ghastly scene met their gaze. The scalpless corpse of Mrs. Hopkins lay across the threshold, with her head split open and her right hand almost severed from the wrist. Near her lay the axe with which the murderous deed had been committed. In one of the bedrooms six of the children were found, one in bed and the others scattered about the floor. They were all dead. Their brains had evidently been dashed out with a club, and every mark about them seemed to have been made with a blunt instrument. The children must have struggled hard for their lives, as articles of clothing and broken furniture were strewn about the room in the utmost confusion. Julia and Emma, aged respectively fourteen and seventeen, 
were found in the kitchen, bruised and insensible, but it is thought their recovery is possible. The eldest girl, Mary, must have taken refuge in her terror in the garret, as her body was found there frightfully mutilated, and the knife with which her wounds had been inflicted still sticking in her side. The two girls, Julia and Emma, who had recovered sufficiently to be able to talk yesterday morning, state that their father knocked them down with a billet of wood and stamped on them. They think they were the first attacked. They further state that Hopkins had shown evidence of derangement all day, but had exhibited no violence. He flew into a passion and attempted to murder them, because they advised him to go to bed and compose his mind. Curry says Hopkins was about forty-two years of age, and a native of western Pennsylvania. He was always affable and polite, and, until very recently, we had never heard of his ill-treating his family. He had been a heavy owner in the best mines of Virginia and Gold Hill, but when the San Francisco papers exposed the game of cooking dividends in order to bolster up our stocks, he grew afraid and sold out, and invested to an immense amount in the Spring Valley Water Company of San Francisco. He was advised to do this by a relative of his, one of the editors of the San Francisco Bulletin, who had suffered pecuniarily by the dividend-cooking system as applied to the Daney Mining Company recently. Hopkins had not long ceased to own in the various claims on the Comstock lead, however, when several dividends were cooked on his newly acquired property, their water totally dried up, and Spring Valley stock went down to nothing. It is presumed that this misfortune drove him mad, and resulting in his killing himself and the greater portion of his family. The newspapers of San Francisco permitted this water company to go on borrowing money and cooking dividends, under cover of which cunning financiers crept out of the tottering concern, leaving the crash to come upon poor and unsuspecting stockholders, without offering to expose the villainy at work. We hope the fearful massacre detailed above may prove the saddest result of their silence. Territorial Enterprise, October 29, 1863 the text of this article is from C. A. V. Putnam's Dan de Quill and Mark Twain, published in the Salt Lake City Tribune on April 25, 1898. It may be based upon memory and incomplete. I Take It All Back The story, published in the Enterprise, reciting the slaughter of a family near Empire, was all a fiction. It was understood to be such by all acquainted with the locality in which the alleged affair occurred. In the first place, Empire City and Dutch Nicks are one, and in the next there is no great pine forest nearer than the Sierra Nevada mountains. But it was necessary to publish the story in order to get the fact into the San Francisco papers that the Spring Valley Water Company was cooking dividends by borrowing money to declare them on for its stockholders. The only way you can get a fact into a San Francisco journal is to smuggle it in through some great tragedy. End of section 10